Welcome to CII Radio. I'm Luke Holloway, editor of The Journal. In this episode, I'll be speaking to Maurice Rose, Stephen Frost and Sarah Stevenson-Hunter. In this episode of the podcast, we're discussing LGBT plus history month, including looking at where the insurance and financial services professions are in relation to society and what work still needs to be done. We're joined by Maurice Rose, co-chair of Link, the LGBTQ plus insurance network, Stephen Frost, CEO of Included and globally recognized diversity, inclusion and leadership expert, and Sarah Stevenson-Hunter, an EDI professional specialising in disability and LGBTQ plus training, advocacy and public speaking. Here's my conversation with Maurice, Stephen and Sarah. Hello, everyone, and thanks so much for joining us on the podcast today. Hi, thanks for having me. It's an absolute pleasure to have you with us. So uh, thanks for finding the time to speak with us today. To begin with, it would be great if each of you could give us a brief introduction to give our listeners an idea of your roles across equality, diversity and inclusion uh, and some of the work that you focus on. Sarah, would you like to start us off? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, Sarah Stevenson-Hunter, my pronouns are she, her. So I, I really do focus on that intersection of disability and LGBTQ plus issues. So I'm a totally blind trans woman myself. So I come at this from a level of personal experience, but also professional experience. I know intersectionality is a big buzzword, but I, I really think it's important that, you know, we, yes, we look at LGBTQ+, and that's obviously important to LGBT History Month. But from my own experience, another experience, you know, a lot of LGBT plus people are also disabled or BME. And so I do try and look at that intersection and focus on those areas. Thank you, Sarah. And Maurice, uh, you're co-chair of LINK, is that correct? Yes, absolutely. So from a DNI perspective, uh, I co-chair Link. So Link is the cross-industry LGBTQ plus network. Um, it's been around for a while, since 2013. And really, Link's mission is to make the insurance industry or support the insurance industry in being the employee of choice for the LGBTQ plus community. We really do try and play a central role within the industry. We bring people together, we coordinate, we collaborate, we focus on education and awareness. But also as well, we recognize that insurance is very much a people orientated business. And we're really, really focused on building those connections and building that sense of community within insurance and within the LGBTQ plus community. We're really lucky, we've got a huge amount of support across the insurance industry and actually um, at the back end of last year and into this year, um, we've gone international. So we've actually launched in New York and Canada and most recently Bermuda as well. So that's the DNI lens, but alongside that, I also work in industry uh, to MS Amelin in uh, risk management as a senior manager. Excellent, thanks Maurice. Uh, and finally, Stephen, what is your role as CEO of Included? Right. Thanks, Luke. Thanks for having me on today. And um, privileged to be joining you and Maurice and Sarah. Uh, See, I've included, I run a, a diversity inclusion consultancy that's kind of global and we, we we're very impact focused. So we very much focus on working with clients to actually get a result. 
because obviously there's a lot of talk in the EDI space, but ultimately it's about changing people's lives, right? And actually trying to make, make a difference. My, my background is quite commercial, but it's also in the voluntary sector. I was at Stonewall from 2004 to seven, then the Olympics, Chief of Staff and then at Diversity for the London Games, KPMG. But it included, um, I work with my colleagues with organisations all over the world that try and make them have more inclusive cultures. And I've written a few books and teach a few business schools too. And I'm um, really pleased to be on this with you today. Thanks for having me. Amazing. Well, it's certainly a privilege uh, to have such a wealth of, of knowledge and positive influence um, from across EDI. Um, so yeah, you're all very welcome. So thank you. I mean, um, Stephen, staying with you for the moment, LGBT plus History Month it is during February. And, and could you tell us about some of the different identities that are represented during the, the event? And uh, because it is such a wide range of individuals and, and groups, isn't it? Yeah, that's right, Luke. I mean, look, it, it's great we have this month, right, to kind of recognise folks who are don't present as just you know typical, and we reflect the diversity in our community and so forth. But um, as we were discussing before, sometimes even the acronyms can get in the way sometimes of people speaking and engaging. We've got lesbian, we've got gay, we've got bi, we've got trans, we've got queer, we've got lots more. We've got asexual, intersexual. We've got quite a lot of folks we need to include. But ultimately, if you want to refer to it as LGBT plus History Month, or you know. E- even sometimes Pride History Month. Um, but yeah, within that, you've got really the diversity of folks um, from sexual orientation, gender identity perspectives. Um, when I was at Stonewall back in the day, which seems like years and years ago now, it was focused very much on lesbian, gay and bisexual. Now, obviously, that's increased to include trans folks and, and hopefully increasing even more. But yeah, that, that range um, of folks is, is very real. The, the fact is that even you know, back, back then when there was, seemed a lot of work to do, there's still a lot to do now. Um, there was a CIPD report just a couple of years ago that showed that 40% of LGB folks and 55% of trans folks still experience conflict and harassment in the workplace. And that compares with only 29% of hetero and cisgender colleagues uh, of similar. So there's clearly still work to do. People who don't feel they can fully be themselves at work. And, and that's why I think this month is, is really important. And Sarah, would you agree with that? I mean, the importance of LGBT plus History Month as as an as a month, that, you know, to raise awareness, but also that it's something that should be supported, of course, beyond February and and you know across all uh, workplaces and, and in society. It's it's one of those difficult balances. I think you know people could say, <clears throat> well, I don't like these particular months because you know I don't just stop being LGBT plus at the end of February, but I think. I think it's a good opportunity to raise awareness of the issues. You know, as, as, as Stephen has said, things have changed, things have developed. I think there's still a, a lot of change happening within the individual EDI spaces and the whole LGBTQ plus issue is, is not immune to that. Change is good. We shouldn't be scared of change, but change can take time. So I think things like um, LGBT plus History Month is a good opportunity to showcase where we've been, where we are now and where we want to get to. So I think that any any opportunity to you know, have these discussions, raise the issues and just show people what it means to be LGBTQ plus and that, yes, there are things to celebrate, but there's also still a lot of work that needs being done before we get to a place where everyone can you know, feel free to be themselves in the work and society and everywhere. 
Absolutely, Sarah. And and Maurice, um, how do Link approach um, LGBTQ plus uh, History Month? What's some of the work you're doing around around the, the event? Um, so I think we utilise it as a bit of an anchor point in terms of our planning and our DNI calendar. And I know certainly from a corporate perspective, many organisations do the same. And I think that's really where the power comes from, whether it be a day, a month. It offers that opportunity to integrate something into a wider DNI plan or initiative. From a link perspective, um, we run a series of events over the course of February. So we ran. Um, an event uh, last week um, with a corporate partner of ours, um, Howden, and that was an opportunity to celebrate and kick off LGBTQ plus history month. Um, we're running an event next week with Hiscox, um, and that's an opportunity to celebrate an initiative we ran last year, which was around being creative and designing an artistic brief around what pride means to you. So we had individuals from across the insurance industry come together um, from their respective organisations to respond to the 50 years of Pride anniversary last year. And they were asked to submit an artistic brief that was judged centrally by a panel of judges. And then the three winning designs were taken forward and are actually being made into sort of mini sculptures or maquettes, as it were. And they'll be unveiled next week um, at our event at, at Hiscox. And again, with a nod to LGBTQ plus history month. We're also doing pieces on education and awareness. So things such as blogs, profiling, historic and current people recognising that there's a number of LGBTQ plus individuals from history that have quite honestly been underrepresented or haven't necessarily had the recognition um, that they deserve. So it's an important month for us to be introspective and for us to reflect on, as was said earlier, where we've come from where we are now and where we want to be. Absolutely. Maurice, and, and, and staying with you, I mean, what are your views on how the insurance profession in particular, or financial services more widely, how are those professions doing in terms of progressing in respect to LGBTQ plus inclusivity? I think it's certainly come on a long way. I am you know, a great advocate of celebrating the positive. I think particularly in the DNI space, we don't necessarily celebrate the successes enough and we definitely need to do more. I think there's still a recognition, particularly as you heard from Stephen earlier in relation to the statistics, that there is further work that's needed, um, particularly on the, the trans inclusion space. But I think overall, we're doing you know, a fair job. I think compared to to other sectors, insurance probably does lag slightly behind if you compare it to law or assets and wealth management or banking. Um, previous to joining MS Amelie and I worked at PwC in professional services as a management consultant. Um, and I think the big four have been doing this very well for many years and uh, you know, are very much up there in terms of thought leadership. I think there's a lot we can learn from other industries. Um, and I also think as well, from an insurance perspective, when it comes to attracting and retaining talent, we're looking outside of insurance now and actually looking to big tech firms, people from banking, people from other industries, and in also attract these individuals and bring them into insurance, we need to create an environment that is both you know, diverse and inclusive and on par with the industries that they're coming from. So there's a talent imperative as well, the argument around this. 
Well, I think certainly since you know I've been in insurance, I've spent uh, the dominant part of my career in the London insurance market, there definitely has been strides made in terms of inclusion. If I look at the success of Link over the years and how it's grown since 2013 in terms of the membership, the events we've put on, the growth internationally, and also the support we have from corporates, but also the ally community. And I think they're a community that's often overlooked when it comes to supporting LGBTQ plus inclusion and actually some of the most powerful voices when it comes to promoting inclusion within this sphere actually comes from the ally community. So I think encompassing those in our strategic objectives is hugely important from a link perspective. We'll need to continue to do more of that and engage and bring those people on the journey as we go forward. And uh, Sarah, what Maurice is, is touching on then, I mean, does that reflect your experience or the areas that you work in? Is there progress being made in the workplace in terms of the LGBTQ plus community? Yeah, I mean, I, I tend to work more within the public sector, <coughs> particularly higher education. I think I think there's definite progress that, that has been made, that is being made. I think obviously within the world of, of obviously higher education, there are some very specific issues, particularly around the whole trans, I'm not going to use the word debate because it's not a debate, but the whole discussion around you know trans acceptance, trans inclusion. I think there are some particular challenges there. Um, so I think you know, universities as a whole are resting with that. I think some are doing better at it than others. But I think, you know, it's like lots of things. As I said, you know, progress is being made. Things are moving forward. But there is still a lot of work to be done. And, I, you know, I, I think we see this, this with any form of EDI. You sort of take two steps forward, then it feels like you take a step back. But it's it it's as long as we're as long as we're moving forward in the right direction, um, that's what that's what keeps me going every day. Absolutely. Um, uh, and Stephen, what are your thoughts on on the, the the kind of progress, but also the challenges that are uh, in terms of the LGBTQ plus community in the workplace? Uh, cheers, Luke. I mean, look, I think the fact that, as Maurice said, uh, Link is now in Bermuda. I mean, look, I, I want to go to a Link summit in Bermuda. So, Maurice, let's go when that's happening. Uh, yeah, Me too. I'll make sure I've got space in my calendar for that one. Um, but uh, look, it's brilliant. I was at Stonewall from 2004 to seven. right? We set up the Diversity Champions Programme. We set up the Workplace Equality Index. Then, you know, Maurice has just talked about Link being set up in 2013 and now all the wonderful progress that's making. I think, look, we, we should pat ourselves on the back and take heart and have some good news in this challenging world that things have in many ways got better. And that's due largely to people like Maurice and Sarah and what they're doing. Um, but I think, look, of course, there's still more work to do, right? I mean, we, we, we sit here and privilege have this conversation on your wonderful podcast, Luke, but you know, it's still illegal to be LGBT plus in 67 countries, right? I mean, it, it's still, you know, very tricky if you are not just a, you know, privileged white guy like me, but you're LGBT plus and also, for example, have disability or, you know, you from a, a group that's marginalized in society. So I think there's still all that work to do. But I think, you know, we learn from history, don't we, that it's about making sure you always pull people up with you. And we've got some really great case studies and some really great progress to, I think, really take heart from. And so I look forward to that Bermuda conference where we bring all of our LGBT plus brothers and sisters together and we make sure that we're all kind of continuing to make, make progress. And we'll be there with you. 
Great. Yeah, add us on to the guest list, Maurice. Uh, <laughs> we'll clear our calendars. <laughs> Fantastic. And I mean, how do you feel, Sarah and Maurice, about um, what we've spoken about, you know, maybe relating to the workplace or the insurance financial services profession? How closely does that reflect society as a whole? Does one influence the other? Uh, you know, is one more pr- progressive than the other, would you say, Sarah? Or, or is the workplace kind of almost a symptom of what happens in wider society? I think it can work either way. So I was really lucky that I think I was in the right time in terms of the right place for my own personal transition. For me, work was a place where I could be myself, where I had support from colleagues, and I couldn't do that at home. But I know for lots of people, that's the reverse, that, you know, home is where they can be themselves and work. It's like, oh, my gosh, no, I couldn't possibly um, you know, live as my true self, whatever that might be. So I think ideally workplaces should be a place that is setting an example, that's modeling inclusion, where we celebrate all forms of, of identity, all forms of diversity, where it doesn't matter who you are, where you've come from, what your abilities are. Um, you know, call me an idealist, that's the goal. So I think that should be the goal. And I think where this works well, it can really model to society, you know, what does an inclusive workplace look like? That that can be reflected in society. And I think there are things we can celebrate, but I think there are still places where, you know, the, the, the stats that Stephen mentioned earlier, where if you are LGBT+, plus, then you don't feel able to be yourself, where you feel you're more likely to be discriminated or harassed, where you're worried about those conversations about what you did at the weekend or talked about your partner or, or, or whatever it might be. So I would say should be in an ideal world, but we've still got a way to go, but we definitely need to celebrate how far we've come. Absolutely. And Maurice, we, we hear the term an open workplace. I mean, can you tell us a bit more about what we mean by that in, in practice and how that benefits employers, but, but especially employees? I think having an open workplace is somewhere where you can ultimately bring your whole self to work, regardless of your diversity characteristic. I think ultimately it has benefits both for the employer and the employee. Often when I speak to executives across the insurance industry, we talk around diversity inclusion being the right thing to do, but also as well, we talk around the business case for it, which uh, you see in many C-suite lights up their eyes and uh, actually gets them more interested. Um, And sometimes that hook is needed. But um, when you look at actually the studies have shown the positive correlation between diversity and inclusion and also productivity, innovation, and ultimately, in many instances, bottom line profitability. If you're able to bring your whole self to work in an open, inclusive environment, you're able to be more productive. You're often able to be more innovative. There's also been studies as well that have shown that more diverse and inclusive teams lead to greater levels of creativity and also as well reduce groupthink, which is particularly important, particularly at senior levels um, when it comes to decision making being made at board level and having diverse and inclusive boards and um, having better decision making. 
it's also as well you know very much a hot topic from a regulatory perspective so both the pra the fca have written to insurance ceos highlighting the importance of diversity and inclusion they've mentioned it in numerous speeches there's a consultation paper out at the moment from the fca so it's very much high up on the agenda in terms of boardroom um, discussions but i think ultimately and to, to your earlier question um, to, to Sarah as well, I think workplaces are in a workplaces have a unique ability to create almost you know a microcosm or a bubble when it comes to a culture or an open or safe space for employees to be their authentic selves and bring their whole selves to work. Many do, some don't, but actually there is much that an organisation can control that is outside or delineates from society um, that they can do to actually make people feel safe, included, um, and also to be their you know, authentic selves and open um, in the workplace. So certainly employers do have a, a huge role here. Um, and it's particularly important as well to create open workplaces in different jurisdictions. So insurance is a multi-jurisdiction market. We operate in numerous countries globally, some of which, as the point was made earlier, it's illegal to be LGBTQ+, and in some instances there's a death penalty. So actually there is a role there for insurance and for big business to advocate for better LGBTQ plus inclusion, but also as well when it comes to staff in local jurisdictions, making sure that they are able to support those staff, whether that be through process, through policy, um, and to make sure that they are able again to be their authentic selves within the constraints of the company, because that's an area that they're able to ultimately control. And I think I can just add one thing on onto that sort of, you know, a lot of a lot of the CDI work, you know, we're focused on LGBTQ plus here. But the more you do for one community, the more it has a positive knock on for others. So in the work I do around disability, you know, if you are a workplace where you're creating that culture of openness around being LGBT plus then that is going to have a knock-on effect for perhaps people feeling more able to talk about a disability or asking for support. And a lot of the work I do, I, you know, there's a lot of crossover between, for example, people who are LGBTQ plus and neurodivergent. And, you know, that, that that's a big topic at the minute. And, you know, things like insurance, I can see where there'd be lots of synergies for neurodiverse people to work there. So again, it's just an example that the, the more we can do within one area, the more we can open up this discussion, create awareness, break down barriers and stigmas, the more it's going to help everybody, no matter who they are. That's really interesting, Sarah, to hear about yeah, the, the positive work in one area can can benefit another. And, and that's great to hear. I mean, I would love to get an idea of what kind of advice you give to firms. I mean, Sarah, you're you're um, out there public speaking and kind of a, a training and advocacy uh, individual in terms of EDI. I mean, what, what advice are you giving to firms and individuals about becoming more inclusive? I think I've just touched on it. I think one thing is about creating that 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 culture of disclosure um, where people feel that it's not just about, oh gosh, my company wants me to disclose for some EDI stats, but about you know disclosing being about well why why would I need to do this? What would be the benefit and seeing that you know it can really 
bring about change. And if you need specific support, it can bring that about. Also, I think we've touched on role models. I think role models and allies are incredibly important, not just you know, at, at a lower level, but within every level from your, your your top level boardroom, you know, trickle down. I think allies are incredibly important. And again, about having appropriate policies that are looking at things like, you know, um, inclusive language and the various different different aspects of policy. But 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 again, it's not just about talking. It's all very well having a policy. But it's very much about seeing that policy in action through, you know, practical guidelines, celebratory events, role models again, um, just putting that policy into practice and actually showing and celebrating how how this these things can really make a difference to the culture of an organization. And obviously, as Maurice has mentioned earlier, the bottom line in terms of you know productivity, creativity. And Stephen, would you agree um, there that with that those practical, that those you know those actual real life changes are so important that firms put those into place and uh, and the individuals get involved as well? Absolutely. I mean, look, I, I'll try and answer your question in in three ways. First of all, I guess what can a, a company or an organisation do at that level, right? And so when you look at the organisation overall, you know. We build inclusive organizations, what we do. And essentially, they've got to do five things. They've got to do strategy. So is it part of what you're doing rather than a segregated work stream? You've got to have data. You've got to be able to measure this stuff. You've got to be able to have governance. So who's responsible, who's accountable. You've got to have leadership. So behaviors that people think it's part of their own behavior. And then you have systems. You have to de-bias those systems, policies, procedures, all that stuff, right? So that's if you're at the organizational level, that's what you've got to do. And there's loads of things we can do on that. But secondly, I think as individuals, right, so if you've got an individual person listening to this podcast, right, what can I do? There's a load that you as an individual can do, even if you're not that senior, right? Whether you've got power or not, whether you're a decision maker or not, budget or not, we can all be a bit more empathetic. We can all be a bit more of an ally. We can all listen a bit more and speak a little less. And I think giving that space is great. The way I try and frame it for clients and colleagues is what's called the platinum rule. So if you think about how we might have grown up, often you were taught to treat others as you wish to be treated, right? Which is the golden rule. Very nice, very lovely. But actually the platinum rule is to treat others as they wish to be treated. You know, not everyone's straight, right? Not everyone can talk about their private life. Not everyone. So it's that little bit of adaptation. So whoever you are, whether you're straight, whether you're gay, whether you're whoever you're senior, junior, if you can try and adapt to the other person, you not only learn yourself and grow as a leader yourself you actually create the space for others to, to be themselves and then the third thing i think is just to like look at all the resources that's out there right there's a ton of great resources out there which can help some free some paid for but i'd obviously try and flog our latest book the key to inclusion luke which is a wonderful read and there's some brilliant people from the industry in that who who give lots of great advice which i would heartily recommend Thank you, Stephen. And, and Maurice, would you, is there anything you'd like to add in terms of that or any way you direct our listeners to find out uh, more or for more resources? Um, I think just to echo a point that was made earlier, just around the strategic imperative of this and actually making sure that DNI is integrated into the wider overarching strategy. I think often it's done on the side of a desk or it's, you know, 
an afterthought. I think making sure it's front and centre and a key aspect of your organisational strategy. There's a huge focus at the moment on ESG, environment, social governance, and particularly through the S lens, people are now considering who they do or don't do business with through various lenses. One of those lenses could be LGBTQ plus inclusion. So actually there's a business lens that you can apply to this with an overarching strategic element um, for consideration. I think in terms of uh, you know, available resources, there's a huge amount there in terms of charities, nonprofit, training providers, networks like Link, um, but also as well within your own organisations. There's probably resources, whether that's within HR or outside of HR. And I think get involved in those. Many organisations have their own employee resource groups. So joining those, getting plugged in, supporting those. Often the organisations themselves are very much uh, money rich, time poor. So offering your time to support is really, really valuable. Um, and using those as a resource and attending events is is showing your support. Thank you, Maurice. And, and finally, Sarah, is there anywhere you'd direct our listeners to find out more about the topics we've discussed today or any more information that, that, that might be helpful to them? Well, I mean, in the spirit of shameless self-promotion, there is my website, Simply Equality. On there, you can find details of my podcast when I do speak to disabled LGBTQ plus people to get that sort of individual human perspective um, I've had some really interesting guests on there, so feel free to look at that. But obviously, as others have said, you know, there's a whole range of charities out there, companies, different organisations. There's so much advice. It's almost hard to know where to go. But but equally, you know, do make use of your company staff networks. I, I've chaired staff networks. I think they can be a great and often underused and underappreciated resource. So, yeah, just just... Take your time, see what's out there and, you know, don't feel overwhelmed by it. Just just do, do what you can because that's all we can all do at the end of the day. Thank you, Sarah. And all that remains is for me to thank the three of you, Maurice, Stephen and Sarah, for, for joining us on the podcast today. It's been such a pleasure talking to you about such an important topic and I'm sure our listeners will agree. So thanks for speaking to us on, on the show today. Thank you. Thanks, Luke. Thanks, everyone. Thanks all. Bye now. And thank you very much for listening to this episode of CII Radio. I'd like to also add that there are additional resources available which accompany this podcast. And if you'd like to access them, you can do so by emailing edi at cii.co.uk. As always, you can also follow us on Twitter at CII Group. So until next time, thank you very much for listening and goodbye. 